I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Will Chamberlain. And I'm Rachel Bovard. And this is NatCon Squad, where common sense and common good meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. And you should definitely subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else. So today we've got four interesting segments that I think all flow nicely one into the next. We'll start with Rachel, who will be discussing this latest, these latest revelations regarding CIA data collection with respect to American citizens. I'll talk a bit about the latest revelations with respect to the John Durham special counsel. Uh, Will Chamberlain, who is in today subbing for Josh Hammer, will talk a little bit about the debanking of wrong thinkers. And then last but not least, speaking of a regime that likes to uh, pursue wrong thinkers, Emily will be discussing the latest on our media mouthpieces for the Chinese Communist Party in connection with the Olympic Games. So with that, I'll turn it over to Rachel first. Yeah, so uh, let's start on my dystopian nightmare to kick us off. (laughs) So (laughs) there were some revelations that came out predictably uh, sort of late Friday night uh, from uh, the CIA, this this whole thing started with a letter that was released by Senators Ron Wyden and Martin Heinrich, a Democrat and a Republican, regarding a program being run uh, at the CIA. And now this had to do specifically with uh, a, a report that was put out by you know, the Civil Liberties Board at the CIA, right, that purports to make sure everything is legal and everybody's rights are being protected. And so much of what was put out was redacted, but the senators seemed to be pointing to a program of bulk metadata metadata surveillance of American citizens uh, under which there was no transparency. Uh, it seemed as though, and widen in follow-up comments has made clear that the senators were unaware of the program, unaware when it started, unaware what oversight it has, and critically, what statutory enforcement or transparency or parameters are around this program. And so what we, we mean by bulk metadata collection, um, this is all still redacted in the report, but we can sort of poke at it. And and usually when they say bulk bulk metadata, they mean telecom communications. So specifically, the focus here is on a program the CIA is running to uncover financial links between American citizens and ISIS. But as some uh, Patrick, my friend Patrick Eddington, who is a former CIA uh, analyst himself who works at the Cato Institute, wrote a a quick report on this uh, revelation, pointed out the number that's redacted appears to be so high that the U.S. government seems to be claiming that thousands and thousands of Americans are involved in financing ISIS, which I think is a, a claim that is absurd on its face. But what that authority means is that they can uncover all of this sort of private data of American citizens. And now to do this, right, to spy on American citizens, the burden is actually very high for the CIA. They're supposed to go through the FISA court. uh, They're supposed to, you know, get a warrant. They're supposed to do all these things. But under this program, the senators seem to be implying, and again, there's a lot we don't know because of the redactions, that the CIA is just sort of doing this outside of any statutory governance, outside of uh, of the FISA process and the FISC. Um, and and really um, engaging in this of their own accord. And so, again, this is, you know, the metadata of American citizens, likely telecom communications, but possibly even geolocation data, financial transaction data, uh, all sort of because they feel like it. And the reason that I raise this is this is an issue that Congress worked on extensively post uh, 
the 2013 Edward Snowden revelations, which revealed, you know, the PRISM program, which was essentially the government, federal government working hand in hand with the big tech companies, Apple, Microsoft, Google, which had really thrown open the back door to the government to provide all of this metadata collection, including, you know, telecom data in addition to social media data. And the Congress in 2015 passed the USA Freedom Act, which basically um, limited the government's ability to do this to unmask American citizens in this process. But this this revelation makes clear that um, apparently that didn't work at all. <laughs> and the CIA just feels as though it can act outside of that uh, and is not constrained at all. And this, to me, is the most concerning part of the story. The details are concerning, but even more than that, it's this idea that the deep, you know, we call the deep state, but deep state, but the intelligence community itself feels completely beholden to no one but themselves, right? They don't feel beholden to laws. You have two senators basically being like, this is a program we didn't even know about and no one is at all concerned. And so I guess my question that I would pose at the end of all of this is like, how do we get this back? Because the only way that I think we can control any of this is to almost like burn it down and start over, right? It's like unplug and reboot, but that's not you know possible. So what is it that we're supposed to do here? Because Congress, I think, has really just lost complete control of you know what the deep state is actually up to. <laughs> yeah, no one knows so, how to answer that. No, I, 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 <laughs> I was going to say, Rachel, you and and because Rachel just sort of was so eloquent and in, in laying all that out and so knowledgeable, um, I'll just add that the point you ended on, Rachel, is why there's sort of this. Obviously, there's always been like a libertarian alliance between um, the sort of Snowden camp and uh, the the Rand Pauls and Thomas Massey's and uh, Ron Pauls of the world. But it's also a pitch in the other direction, right? So that when you talk about how the, the so-called deep state is so out of control that there's really no way to wrangle it, even if you want to. Even if you want to, there's no way to wrangle it because there are so many different legal mechanisms via um, classified, you know, categorization, via all of these unaccountable uh, little branches that have various powers. And so, in the other direction, it's a it's a good example of why, like, we should be trying to rein in the size and scope of the federal government because it is a clear and not even latent but immediate threat to civil liberties and we have seen that um we saw yesterday in canada talking about banking and etc this is it may maybe it is latent to some extent but in in other ways it's very much an immediate pitch um and so I don't, i'm not suggesting we go back to the days of dressing up like founding fathers at tea party rallies and, and talking about limited government um but it is an important a, a really important point that our federal government has careened um and just become this massive labyrinth of huge powers to the point where it's it's hard to even keep track of them um and so i think it absolutely should remain a priority of the right and of people who support civil liberties and want to protect civil liberties to rein in those powers, although this is an example that underscores how incredibly difficult that now is. Yeah, I, I think the you know the deeper problem here is not just that you know how how big government is, but rather that the intelligence community is sort of flagrantly disobeying the wishes of Congress, right? So that that creates a secondary problem. So Congress tries to put in place various restrictions, and then the intelligence community is like, "That's cute. How funny! <laughs> Your restrictions are meaningless to us." So um, how does this get fixed? Well, it gets fixed with law enforcement. I think you know a Republican DOJ that enters in twenty four needs to come in with a mandate to prosecute wrongdoing severely in the intelligence community. Like we, we need to get to the point where, you know, I, I think a big mistake that Trump made 
um, is not prosecuting, for example, uh, James Clapper for perjury when he lied to Congress about uh, the the intelligence community, what what the NSA's programs that it had that Snowden revealed. Um, there there just needs to be heads on pikes from the intelligence community to make it clear that like you guys, because as far as as far as the intelligence community is concerned, like they can go after anybody they want and do any kind of damage they want. And nobody gets nobody seems to ever get prosecuted from within the community unless they leak. That's like the only thing you get prosecuted for. Um, and that just needs to change. Like the guy, people who put, you know, there needs to be new criminal penalties. It's like, oh, you exceed the limits we put here. That's 20 years in prison. And we're, we're serious. Like y'all are going to jail until you stop doing this stuff. And like, and that's anybody involved. That's management. That's like, you know, you, you just have so many levels of criminal liability available. I, I don't, and oh, well, we drive out a bunch of people out of the intelligence community that are worried about criminal prosecution because they wanted to spy on Americans more too bad. Um, so that's my view. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. The penalties have to be so extreme that they are such a deterrent that any wrongdoing uh, is basically you know, completely off the table for individuals in the intelligence community. I also just want to point out here that when we're talking about the CIA in particular, the CIA's mandate is foreign, not domestic, period, full stop. And one of the things that we've seen, of course, is the pervasive use of these pervasive powers domestically, which in and of itself is incredibly disturbing. Because here you're talking about the tip of the spear of the administrative state itself. And, and let's be clear that the deep state is a microcosm of the broader administrative state, which, of course, hyper-regulates and looks into, peers into every aspect of American life. But here you have the agencies with the most awesome possible powers operating in total secrecy because they have to, to function for the most part. Uh, and that, of course, leads to the most uh, widespread abuses here. And I guess the last thing that I want to say is it's really remarkable on its face how much visibility our intelligence apparatus has into everything that we as Americans do, and yet has almost no visibility by its own admission into the actions of our worst adversaries led by communist China. It's an utter indictment of these agencies. But also, let's, let's note, you know, we talk about our political class. They put laws in place and you know, putatively oversee these agencies. Why is it that they don't actually hold them to account? I think it's in part because the agencies are so strong that the politicians themselves are intimidated by them. And that's probably a great segue into what I'm going to talk about, which is uh, Russiagate slash Spygate, the parallel spying operation that we now know transpired based upon the latest uh, revelations from the Durham Special Counsel. So I want to be precise here. Uh, in talking about kind of the facts associated with this, and then we can go into you know, the myriad implications of what we found out. So interestingly, John Durham, as he seems to have a habit of doing in his filings, just as he's done with these sort of speaking indictments, where he lays out a whole slew of information that paints the picture of making a massive conspiracy case of you know, the Clinton campaign working hand in hand with the media, working hand in hand with the FBI, the CIA, the State Department, and beyond. Here, in a filing regarding a Clinton campaign lawyer who is indicted, Michael Sussman, potential conflicts of interest around his legal representation, Durham lays out a whole slew of facts that he claims he can prove in a court of law that are really fascinating and incredibly disturbing. Among them, that not just the deep state itself was spying on the Trump campaign and then later the Trump presidency, but that the Clinton campaign was hacking internet traffic from Trump Tower, the central, his Central Park West apartment building, 
in the executive office of the president of the United States. And as best as I can read it, and uh, Sussman himself in a subsequent filing that I'll mention in a second points to this fact, the Clinton campaign was actually mining the traffic from the executive office of the president during the Obama administration. So I'm surprised that the Obama officials aren't uh, up in arms that the Clinton campaign was spying on the Obama White House. I haven't really heard that mentioned, but of course they were doing it. And this is the key point. And this is a quote directly from Durham's filing. Look, mining EOP, that's executive office of the president, DNS traffic and other data for the purpose of gathering derogatory information about Donald Trump. And then Durham also reveals that Sussman took some of this information resulting from this effort. And I believe February 2017 to an unnamed agency, which we know is the CIA, to try to further spur investigations into Trump-Russia collusion. Now, as I mentioned, there's a subsequent filing here uh, from furious lawyers on behalf of Sussman who actually want the court to strike in full all of this factual background that I've just discussed for, for various reasons. Of course, the media is either silent on this or running direct interference effectively uh, against the Durham special counsel, again, to the extent it's even been mentioned by major media. So this is obviously huge for a number of reasons. Obviously, on the merits, the fact that the Clinton campaign was spying on the Trump campaign and even mining data that was collected, by the way, sensitive data, proprietary data from the White House through a contract this contractor had with the federal government, which I think dated back even to 2014, potentially, not to get too far into the weeds of it. But I want to say that not only is this uh, sort of the preeminent issue when it comes to the weaponization and hyperpoliticization of our national security and law enforcement apparatus against a member of the opposition party. And that is really how I believe our, our ruling class feels about Trump and why they went after him with everything they possibly had. But this is a live issue right now. And it's really not talked about enough. How many Russiagators are in the Biden administration? I mean, let's remember, Biden was the number two person in the Obama administration in the room for many of the most infamous meetings around Russiagate. The national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, today was the key campaign advisor to Hillary Clinton, who went to the media countless times and spread dangerous misinformation and disinformation about the Trump alphabet, Trump Tower, Alpha Bank ties, etc. He may have perjured himself when he basically said, I had no knowledge of you know, the nefarious goings on in the Clinton campaign with creating the Steele dossier, may have perjured himself in front of Congress with respect to that. Sullivan's wife, serves as counsel to the Attorney General Merrick Garland, who is overseeing the Durham Special Counsel. And these are just a few people, but of course, there's a slew of Russiagators who have never paid a price, and many of whom are serving at the highest levels of the federal government still to this day. So the point that I would make simply is this. If you are silent and not engaging in action right now to pursue every last Russiagator in connection with these efforts, you're complicit in it, period, full stop. And it's amazing to see Still pretty much the widespread silence of the GOP on this. Maybe they think it's not a campaign issue, but it's obviously a vital issue to the health and well-being of the republic. Um, so I wonder what you know you all make of these revelations and then kind of the political and media fallout associated with them. So I think the most like I guess it isn't really shocking anymore, but like the lack of coverage, right? Like this is actually an earth shaking story. If you dig into the details, right? You have like 
like a political campaign spying on their opponent, not only when he was a candidate, but also in the White House itself in an attempt to feed a law enforcement narrative. Right. This wasn't just like spin in the media. They want they tried to like use the the levers of government to go after their political opponent and were largely successful uh, in doing so, you know. People tie it to Watergate, but I actually think this is like unprecedented, right? This is this is makes Watergate look trivial. Um, and I think, you know, the more people see these details, I think the biggest concerning, you know, feature for me is the fact that nobody is going to be punished and people are going to see that. They're going to see that this happened and how egregious it was, and then no one is punished for it. And so, yes, I think you can indict the lawyers and you can, you know, do this or that. But, you know, we saw what happened to the 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 lawyer at the FBI who fudged that FISA warrant to spy on Carter Page. I think he basically like served a little bit of jail time and then was reinstated in his full glory and by the D.C. bar. Right. Like there, there are actually no punitive professional consequences to doing this. And so, yikes, man, I don't know what that portends for our politics, but it ain't good. <laughs> Yeah, and it's not, I mean, you can compare that to how Rudy Giuliani was treated. I mean, he's, his license has been suspended for outlandish statements about during the campaign about election fraud, never mind like actually trying to fudge a warrant, which is like a very basic obligation of prosecutors not to do that. That's a crime as opposed to just saying outlandish things. Um, I mean, there's so many different institutions that are arrayed against the right right now. And it's kind of hard to know where to begin in terms of having to like unwind these, these problems. Uh, and so, you know, hopefully we get something out of Durham in terms of actual indictments of people um, and something humility, you know, that maybe humiliates somebody like Jake Sullivan into resigning, which he probably should. Um, he shouldn't be around. It also kind of connects into that, that CIA story a little bit. You know, one of the reasons, you know, the CIA story is so troubling is, I mean, these guys, the left has, is utterly ruthless when it comes to beating up on Trump, anybody affiliated with Trump. I mean, basically they see Trump as, sort of the ultimate uh, exception to any normal rule or procedure and everything is justified in, in getting rid of Trump. And well, what does that mean? It means you you get stuff like, you know, leaking classified transcripts and uh, spying on, you know, internet traffic in the, in the camp, in the executive office of the president. Um, it's, it's real bad. And I just, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more from Durham and hopefully, hopefully, I mean, somebody gets prosecuted. Although, I mean, again, who knows, Merrick Garland might start shutting it down if it gets too close to anybody uh, too high up in the White House. We could do an entire episode on this. Like th this week's episode could have been just about this. That's how, um, to borrow Rachel's phrase, earth shattering of a story. Um, it is when people are sort of saying it's it's worse than Watergate. And by people, I mean Donald Trump and, and others. Um, that's correct. It's, it is entirely correct. It's um, on, a, on a scale and level of severity, um, just so much worse. And what it's double, right? So like on the one layer, it's worse in all those regards. And then on the second layer, it's worse because there's zero media uh, concern for this. The media has um, almost utter disinterest in this story. They don't want to cover it and they certainly aren't going to treat it with the same level of sort of shock and seriousness. They treated every single 
little development, every scrap of news, if, if James Comey blew his nose, it was a news cycle, um, you know, just a couple of years ago. And yet here we have something that's absolutely massive. And I don't think they realize how damaging it is um, for the public to have gone through the the cycle of Trump is, you know, compromised by Russia. And then to hear this story to the extent that they actually hear it um, or it comes across their Facebook feeds and think, wait a second, what the heck is going on? I, I do not think the media has any idea how damaging that is um, because they, they, if they understood how damaging it was, they would understand that it's bad for them, um, that it is what's you know destroying the TV ratings of CNN, that it is what's um, hurting all of these different brands. But, and that's why people are flocking to Joe Rogan and, and everywhere else, of course. But the story is, it's accurate to say that this is, this is worse than Watergate. And I think there's more to come, of course. Um, but you know, to an extent, we already knew that the Russia collusion hoax was, um, uh, you know, a complete joke and a very, very serious, um, a very, very serious story, but like, it's going to just keep getting worse and it's going to keep getting worse also because the media is going to continue, um, to pretend that it never happened. And it just goes to show what a serious uh, problem we have as a country on our hands. Yeah, last point I'll make is we're six years past some of the initial events in this, and we still don't have nearly the full picture of it, which I think speaks to how opaque these authorities are, but also how deep this went and how many people were implicated in part because I believe they never thought they'd get caught uh, in any respect. Um, so I think that, that that's a remarkable element of this uh, as well, and we'll have to keep a focus on it uh, going forward. Um, with that, let's uh, let's turn over to Will and the the debanking of fingers. Yeah. So if if you're familiar with what Canada has been up to, obviously there's been massive protests and uh, road blockages in Canada fighting against the vaccine mandates and the general broader tyranny of the Trudeau regime. Um, but in, in all seriousness, what what the Trudeau government announced yesterday was was actually pretty shocking. Um, they evoked, invoked their Emergencies Act, which is somewhat similar to our National Emergency Act, but unlike here, where it's routinely invoked for the, the White House to impose sanctions on foreign countries, in Canada, it's never been invoked uh, since it was enacted in 1988 um, and since it was rewritten. Um, and so now we're looking at, uh, they did this to essentially give the federal government new powers um, to thwart the blockades and to punish anybody involved in uh, funding the the freedom protests um and some of these are just are just shocking i mean some of them seem small they're they're asked they're trying to bring crowdfunding platforms into their like registry of banks for for you know to kind of undercover like when they want to do any sort of looking into terrorist financing but that's that's not the big one the big one is they've they've created a way for they essentially are wanting banks to suspend the and freeze the accounts of anybody involved in the protests are making it so that if a bank does that, just suspects somebody's involved in protests and freezes their account, they're just unilaterally decreeing that that's okay as long as they do it in good faith and they're immune from civil liability from doing so. Um, and they're doing other things, they're like sharing information with banks uh, to make sure. So basically, what you're the end result here is that if you're somebody involved in these protests or if you're somebody who even funded these protests, you're currently at risk of just somebody in a bank. Your, your bank snapping its fingers and freezing your bank account and preventing you from accessing your own money. Um, it's a shocking escalation. It's something that, you know, I don't know exactly, I've tried to figure out exactly what the 
how the much power in this regard exists in the United States, but certainly it's not something you could do without a court order. It's not something you could do without like, you, without making a showing, but apparently in Canada, you know, you can literally take somebody's cash without due process just on the spot and, and not just, you know, cash they're carrying around that's inherently suspicious. No, you can just freeze their bank account because you think they're a bad person. Um, totally unacceptable. I think it's it's unclear what the remedy is for this. It's there's and it's completely unnecessary. I mean, these aren't violent protests. This isn't the summer of of 2020 where you saw you know riots and looting and burning down of of businesses. This is just you know protests in in roads, which was sort of a modest thing that a lot of the the rioters were doing in 2020 compared to some of the more violent things. But it's on the wrong side, and it's it's you know the Trudeau regime is terrified. So this is what we're getting. Um, I, I look at this as just is remarkable. Clearly, the Biden administration is actually involved in pressuring Trudeau to do this. That's another thing. Like, it's not uh, it's not just Trudeau in Canada. It's it's also our liberal our liberal elites in Washington that are demanding that the Trudeau government crush the protesters. And uh, so that's scary in of itself. But you know, independently, we would if a foreign country did this, if if Orban did this in Hungary, if I mean Putin did it in Russia, we would be seeing this as like an, an extreme overreach. Uh, signs of authoritarian dictatorship, um, a massive violation of civil liberties. There was even that bit where the, the New York Times briefly tweeted out that it was a violation of civil liberties and then retracted the claim because, you know, they were getting pushback from Canadian liberals. Um, yeah, it's it's scary. I, I think uh, I, I wouldn't want to live in Canada. I think if you're a Canadian and you're at all right wing, I don't know if you can use a Canadian bank. Like, can you use a Canadian bank if you don't know one day they'll just freeze your assets and you won't be able to pay your rent? Like, and you know, they can do that without a court order. They can just do that on, you know, you sent 20 bucks to them on give, send, go. And all of a sudden your, your bank account gets frozen. It's unbelievable, uh, way out of line. And, uh, you know, in a, in a different world, we'd be looking, you know, in a world where we were actually Republicans, serious Republicans were in power. We'd be in touch with the Trudeau government, letting them know that if this policy continued, that we would be personally sanctioning, we would be sanctioning all of the people involved in this policy personally and suspending their access to the global banking system unless they stop this and let Canadians live freely. But with that, I'll, I'll leave it to you guys to tell you to see what you think. This is one of the most stunning escalations I've seen um, in the West, <laughs> frankly, yeah. on on a lot of the, uh, these questions. And, and what I mean by that is the overt ideological weaponization of the financial system. Um, you know, to your point, will it be? I think it's a, high, a much higher bar for that to happen here, although mm-hmm. not in some cases, right? In the in the sense that yes, they couldn't seize your assets, but you can be unbanked, right? In the mm-hmm. sense that the banks will not work with you because of your ideology, and we are already seeing this. You have, I think, it's major banks like Wells Fargo, uh, J.P. Morgan. Citibank, all will not process firearm transactions. They will not provide depository services for contractors who work with ICE. You know, throwing down overt ideological gauntlets uh, for access to the banking system. And, you know, it goes beyond the traditional banking system, too. Obviously, PayPal has been doing this. Um, you know, on a number of cases, they've brought in the Anti-Defamation League to police the ideology of their users. And PayPal is the world's largest non-bank lender. Um, So I do think that this trend is very concerning because, you know, not only, because I think it can be compelled not only with government edict, but also just with the type of investor pressure, the the type of government pressure, right, that's not 
uh, an overt command, but compels you to, you know, comply just via, oh, you, you know, you, do you want to be an audited or not, you know, kind of thing. Um, And I don't, this is the guts of capitalism, right? This is not just trying to post on social media. Um, This is really accessing the free market and the things that you need to do and have access to, to be able to make money in this, in, 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 in a free country. Um, so I am very concerned about this because I think our, our debates in Congress on a lot of these questions are just way, way behind, way behind what's actually happening. Um, so I think that this has to be securing access to all levels of the market has to be a priority, if not for our self-government, then for some, someone else, because <laughs> this is at risk at this point. Yeah. I think it's only a matter of when, not if, there are attempts to, uh, via the government, impose policies like this or attempt to impose policies like this on Americans. I think, to your point, Rachel, our putatively private institutions are already of their own volition, uh, debanking people to some extent. And of course, we see, you know, obviously, when it comes to First Amendment, it's basically completely gone uh, by proxy. And I think that this fits into, obviously, the broader argument that I make every week here, which is that there's a war on wrong think. It's now a global war on wrong think, not just a domestic war on wrong think, where basically the ruling classes uh, writ large are saying that any opposition to them constitutes potential or actual terrorism, and that consequently people need to be pursued. Democratic opposition needs to be pursued like terrorists. And I think There's an analog to be drawn here between the political persecution in the January 6th committee, which, of course, if you look at it, if you were to say, "Hmm, are these congressmen trying to make a terrorist case against their political opposition? What would you do? You'd 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 seek to purloin all of the communications between every individual and every organization and their mother and grandmother and most distant cousins who had anything to do with saying anything about the 2020 election. And then you would put out national terrorism advisory bulletins saying that wrong think about election integrity itself potentially could inspire terrorist threats. And obviously, of course, you know, the most kind of direct representation of criminalizing your opposition and treating them as as terrorists are the political prisoners, the people who are being clearly persecuted for their political beliefs in a legal context with respect to some of the January 6th defendants. So, and and I think the last point that I'd make here is under the guise of saving our democracy, uh, the ruling class is seeking to destroy, again, any democratic opposition. And you can draw a straight line from President Trump and anyone around him to a podcaster like a Joe Rogan, to uh, a grandma who was in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, to Canadian truckers. Uh, It's all kind of one and the same. It's any opposition to ruling class, any dissent has to be treated as a threat and consequently pursued up to and including individuals and groups like terrorists. And I think that's what we see. That's where we are in the West today. There was a really interesting response um, from Phil Klein at National Review to the clip um, that went viral uh, from Canada, exactly as as Will described. And uh, Phil, who I like, quote tweeted it and said, thank God for the United States Constitution. And it's an interesting response because Yes, thank God for the United States Constitution, um, indeed. But uh, I don't think it matters to the people who wish to sort of seize these powers, um, that there are 
in a in an ideal world where we can share an interpretation of the constitution and a sort of reverence for what it's uh, what it's about I don't think they care. Um, I, I don't think they care at all. And that's because, you know, the the sort of uh, living, breathing document thing that people have been talking about for years, yes, but also just because they have such contempt for people who think differently and they feel like they are in such danger. It, this is like, actually, there, there are cynical people who are exploiting that fear in the executive branch and the administrative state and in the government and in business communities. But there are also a lot of people who are genuinely dumb enough to be afraid of people who think differently because they've been sort of conditioned by society to fear that to, to viscerally fear that to psychologically fear that um, and we're in a very dangerous place and so I, I don't know that you know I like listen I, I love the Constitution I, I hope that the Constitution will protect us and I think indeed it has protected us um, you know in, in recent years in different ways as things work through the court system but that has also gone in uh, less than uh, I would say less than favorable directions in certain cases so yes thank God for the US Constitution but we we're we're in a situation where we have to kind of address the fact that not everybody in the positions of power um, feels compelled to respect the Constitution in the way that they used to um, and feels any sort of reverence or duty to the Constitution. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think you can absolutely be unbanked. It's a matter of when, not how. Um, and it's it's already started happening um, in in smaller ways, but it's just it's just a matter of when it starts happening on a wider scale. Yep. Constitution's only so good as the judge to interpret it. Right. So. Right. But. Yep. Absolutely. And that's, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, I guess, are transitioning to me. Uh, so lucky to <laughs> lucky for everyone um, here and lucky for everybody listening. You'll get to hear uh, more. So uh, Senator Marco Rubio um, wrote an op-ed for Fox News, and he's been on top of the uh, of NBC's coverage of the Olympics, which nobody's really watching on TV. Um, but NBC kind of claims is getting uh, a lot of clicks on social media, a lot of views on TikTok, of course, where else uh, would you watch the Beijing Olympics? Uh, but on Beijing software. Um, and so NBC claims that this is actually not doing as poorly as some people think, although the TV ratings are abysmal. Um, and, you know, that's sort of a, a function of mass media dying. And, um, you know, there are all kinds of things. People don't really want to watch these Olympics. Uh, there's still COVID, you know, nobody's in the stands. Um, and so it's just, it's it's been kind of a disaster for NBC and they can spin it as much as they want. But Senator Rubio um, has called them out for, you uh, saying, for instance, they have referred to the, uh, the the treatment of the Uyghurs as allegations, which I think is a really interesting move, uh, because in many, many cases, by their own standards, they would not be referring to these as allegations, given the evidence, the firsthand testimony, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's plenty of, of evidence, um, despite what some people on the far left uh, might claim. There's plenty of evidence of this, and NB. You see, I don't think would be using the allegation standard um, if it were something like palace intrigue about Donald Trump. Um, you know, remember, everyone came out and said Donald Trump was not spied on, um, you know, as, as a matter of fact, for a very long time. So they're, they're referring to treatment of the, the Uyghurs as um, in that way. And then in Senator Rubio makes this point. They also sort of have 
bought the CCP spin on certain things. Um, and so, and that, but that's like baked into the challenge of covering Olympics as the, as the media partner for the Olympics when they're based in Beijing because the entire spectacle and this point cannot be lost the entire spectacle is propaganda so if you're going to cover the Olympics as the media partner this was decided in 2015 so it's you know yes it was a long time ago but it was decided in 2015 and it was a different time uh, although you still should have had the foresight probably to realize this wasn't a good idea Um, but if you're going to cover these Olympics period you're giving China the airtime that it wants and you're, you're giving China the space to host its opening ceremony and to make its case to the world that it's on top of the world order, that it is the, this is the decade of China. And so it, to some extent, it's just an inescapable problem. Now, I haven't actually been watching the Olympics, uh, and so it's kind of hard to figure out exactly how bad NBC's coverage has been. Um, and I've been relying on some media reports just of the credulous repetition and regurgitation of certain lines that you know the Chinese government wants um, like for instance that they're they're interested in diversity uh, which is hilarious because that's the last thing that the CCP is interested in for so many reasons um, but it's the credulous repetition of that but all of this again is I think baked into the challenge so I will toss this open to uh, to the group and with the caveat that yes we are participating in some sort of diplomatic boycott um, great but um, also is this not kind of inevitable is this not sort of an inevitable predicament what should have been done um, leading up to it and what does it say I guess about NBC and the business community of corporate sponsors, Coca-Cola, et cetera, um, that we are now participating in this uh, economically and in terms of our free press. Well, I think this kind of just gets to the facade of moral authority that the <laughs> that our mainstream outlets have, right? Because they they cover they love to think that they're covering themselves in in virtuous glory, you know, in covering a lot of these you know, uh, uh, stories about Black Lives Matter and, you know, all of this and that. And yet the country which the U.S. government has officially declared participating in a genocide, um, you know, is is sort of treated heroically. Um, the U.S. athlete Eileen Gu, who like gave up her U.S. citizenship to compete on behalf of China. Um, you know, I've had the Olympics on in the background, the, the profiles of her, repeated profiles of her and, you know, the glowing profile of why she chose to do it and how it's really a, a statement of female empowerment, because you know it's just like totally insane. Right. And, and I, I just have a hard, you know, there are some people who say, well, the Olympics shouldn't be political, but these are the reporters and the outlets that make everything political. And so to make a distinct choice to not make this political and not actually press Eileen Gu with questions about uh, how do you feel about giving up, you know, your citizenship to a country that's committing, literally committing genocide. You make this a story about female empowerment. Let's talk about the Uyghurs. What about the Uyghur women (laughs) and their forced sterilizations and their forced abortions? And I just think it's it's just a, such a statement to like the the, sh- the hollowness uh, of what we witness on a day to day basis of their coverage here versus their coverage there. It's you know, and of course, no one talks about it because they never self report. Well, I'll jump in quickly and just say the one little scrap of Olympic coverage that I took in was on accident when I turned my TV on, um, and they were covering something like the, I think it was CBS was covering goo, and it was like insane uh, to watch the CBS 
panel um treat the situation like it was the most anti-american pablum i have like it, it just like blew my mind that that was happening and it, sh it shouldn't surprise me but i couldn't believe the way that they were treating her in particular i think it's a really good point rachel yeah imagine imagine if uh we were if, i'm sorry if these news networks were as afraid of like insulting conservatives as they were of insulting the chinese communist party Right, like that would be a remarkably different world, but they're all in bed with the Chinese Communist Party. It's almost like there's like mutual ally, you know, essentially mutual adversaries between the two of them, right? Like Chinese Communist Party doesn't like the Republican Party and the Democrats don't like the Republican Party. So, hey, you know, everybody can just get along. Yeah, well, one of the things that occurred to me is uh, how different does our media cover China, the CCP and Xi from uh, the Democrat Party. It, it's probably pretty similar in terms of how well, how closely they hew to and tow the party line. Uh, and I think it's sort of axiomatic because the media is the communications, the corporate media is the communications arm of the ruling class. The ruling class kowtows to and increasingly emulates communist China. So it almost has to be this way. And obviously there's the self-interested aspect of it in terms of the dollars that these networks um, and outlets get directly tied to or indirectly tied to the Chinese Communist Party and Chinese entities and individuals and the like. There's obviously, uh, to Will's point, you know, the shared sort of anti-American ideological focus of the two. So, you know, common adversary, I guess, you know, normal patriotic Americans, namely. But I think, you know, the broad point about the Olympics that I keep going back to is the world has suffered incalculable damage, eroded its liberty, liberties and justice potentially to an irrevocable extent, it starts from communist China and they are getting rewarded with these games two years on. It's just so absolutely absurd and asinine on its face. And it really makes the response post Tiananmen look like a strong response. In post Tiananmen, there were you know, some basically cosmetic sanctions, but then China continued its rise and America continued its, its devastating, deathly engagement with it. But here it's even more over in a lot of respects. We have to partner with China. We have to reward China with the Olympic Games after they've inflicted damage on us, not just over there, far away college students, tens of thousands uh, of like-minded democratic folks in their own home country here. Uh, it's absolutely asinine. And one more thing on just the media reportage or lack thereof, and I on principle have not watched the games either, but I understand that at least one of the Uyghurs who was held up for, uh, I think, a skier, um, you know, lighting the flames at the start of the games uh, was, I believe, dropped from the team and basically has been disappeared and gone silent. So that, that's communist China for you. So with that, we can go to closing thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so actually, I'll I'll have a closing thought that sort of spins off of that. Um, in the way Nancy Pelosi talks about China, I made the mistake. Actually, it wasn't a mistake. It's been fun of reading um, Molly Ball's hagiography of Nancy Pelosi, um, which was published, I think, last year, and it <laughs> it does recall this this time that Nancy Pelosi went to China and, and went to Tiananmen Square. And some of you may be familiar with this example. It was in uh, the early mid '90s and made a, a big spectacle of um, standing in Tiananmen Square, getting pictures and photo opportunities and actually jumping in, I think, to a news broadcast and calling out human rights abuses in China. Um, and that was right before the sort of business relationship uh, started to flourish.
clownish between our two countries. And you now have the way Nancy Pelosi talks about China being just entirely different. And to Rachel's point about the the complete, there are two points I'll make. One, to Rachel's point, there's this complete um, lack of credibility that our moral authorities claim and all of our institutions, right? So almost every single one of our institutions is corrupted by a false claim to moral authority that they use to attack um, people who think differently than them and, and behave differently to them. But what that means is we are living in a country where there are no institutions with moral authority and moral credibility. And that is, a, is, is just so incredibly dangerous. It obviously creates a vacuum um, that will be exploited. And I think to some extent has been exploited by our media and, and elsewhere. But just, I think it's a, a one of one of the many helpful lenses to look at our society is, is the one in which we don't have any institutions with moral credibility or authority left. And um, we're just sort of wandering through the wreckage of that every single day. Um, and there's nobody other than like Joe Rogan um, and, you know, people who are trying to build parallel institutions or rebuild institutions um, from scratch. That's the last best hope um, in this situation is that people can build better institutions, not that the old ones can be repaired. Yeah, no, that that reminds me of, you know, the remember David Brooks wrote that article about the National Conservatism Conference and was like talking about people like Rachel and being like, gosh, they're so kind and they're so well mannered so polished and they're so radical they're, they're yet they're so radical it's so terrible it's like well how, how can you not be radical like <laughs> like today's example all these examples of today are just like wow maybe we need radical changes in the way our government works or in in the way other western governments work as well you know maybe it's not okay to randomly freeze the assets of protesters without due process maybe we need a radical change to the authority maybe we need a radical change to the intelligence community if they flagrantly disobeyed congress's will and are collecting information on a million people after having been demonstrated to be engaged in a ton of political leaking during the trump administration maybe um you know all these different aspects of, of sorry the spying on the trump campaign the nbc getting in bed with a communist dictatorship how are how are you not radical about the rot in our institutions and wanting to see it purged um you know we just need we need you know national conservatism is is conservative in the sense of trying to conserve like what what traditional america was but man it, it in in a lot of ways it is a radical movement because wow are liberal elites terrible yeah, you guys can't see this the, that David Brooks article, but it's framed in full behind my head. <laughs> it was a Christmas gift for my husband. <laughs> hey, you know, you only get one in a million hit pieces in the Atlantic. So, um, but yeah, you know, I think that's that's sort of exactly right. Like this moment, like none of us woke up or, or were born being like, yes, I'm going to pursue radical politics. But it's like, you know, the, the moment sort of mugs you in that direction. And I think, you know, an element that really does it for me is the sort of the link that ties, I think, my segment and Will's together, which is, you know, not only sort of the legal aperture for harassment, right, that has always existed, but the extent to which the sort of private power is now participating in it. Um, you know, one thing I didn't mention about my story with the CIA is that you know, we don't know, again, because of the redactions, the, the, the type of data the CIA is collecting or the extent to which it is, but there's a very good possibility that they are just circumventing the entire statutory framework, the entire Fourth Amendment, by just purchasing bulk metadata off the third-party data market. Because every app on your phone, right, 
a lot of them sell the data they collect on you. And that is very precise geolocation data. That is very precise browser data. Uh, that is all kinds of data that's just for sale. And they can do that because it's a lawless market, right? It's a, it's a, it's a marketplace that's developed outside any legal framework. And to the extent that our We've seen examples of this before that DOD has purchased, bulk purchased this data off the market for the purposes of surveillance. So it's not out of the realm that, you know, what the CIA doing is doing is completely legal simply because we our self-government has not caught up uh, to the innovations around our digital space. And this sort of goes back to what I was mentioning in Will's segment, which is, again, this idea that, yes, in the United States, we do have, thank God, you know, broader constitutional protections, but not necessarily when it's private business choosing to disassociate. Uh, over ideology. And so there's this element to all of this, which is new and different, which is, again, because the, the private power that exists in banking, that exists in tech, again, is so concentrated, the scale at which it can sort of impose itself really can debank or deplatform or cut off swaths of society in ways that was never possible before. And so we are living in that and we are virtually unprepared for it. So yes, in, new institutions are necessary and welcome, but how can those new institutions be built if you can't you know, get a bank loan? <laughs> and that's sort of the state of affairs. I guess crypto for everyone. Yeah, and I saw, of course, an article last week saying that the Biden administration is going to elevate crypto to a national security issue, which of course means you know they'll be trying to hyper-regulate that out of existence to uh, mask the fact that they're destroying their own currency, of course. Um, so yeah, I agree. The, the awesome powers in the private sector is a disturbing aspect of this. Private sector tyranny of its own volition is to me more despicable than government doing it because you expect government to abuse the monopoly on force and authority that it has. But when people are doing it of their own volition against their ostensible fellow citizens, uh, it's really disturbing. Although, of course, how many of these businesses are directly or indirectly controlled or captured by the federal government itself? So uh, and, and we know that business working hand in hand with government, that there's a word for that. And it's fascism from the same people who talk about defending our democracy 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's kind of the point I want to end on, which is that our valiant defenders of democracy are acting in the most authoritarian and destructive ways, ruining any semblance of a pluralistic society. And I'm not sure how long the chasm between the ruling class and the people they wish to rule over can keep growing like this. And the only thing I'd say about it, the, the I guess kind of perverse silver lining that, that we could see is that if a trucker convoy poses is deemed to pose an existential threat to a regime or a podcaster is deemed to pose an existential threat to a regime, then how strong is that regime? Are these acts, these most extreme acts, the acts of people who are in command and legitimate and credible, or is, does the emperor have no clothes? They hate when that's exposed and consequently they have to lash out in all sorts of ridiculous, tyrannical ways. So I'll leave on that sunny, hopefully optimistic note uh, for Will, Rachel and Emily. I'm Ben Weingarten. Thanks so much for tuning in to Nat Contois and we'll see you at the next episode.